0: Our scripture passage today comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a faithful guide for your people. And so we ask, Father, uh, that you would show us today how we might possess supernatural peace in a world filled with chaos. And Father, now as we come to your words, speak to us through your spirit, change us and make us look more and more like your son Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Here in this passage today, the Apostle Paul speaks of a peace which surpasses all understanding, being available to God's people. This was no doubt a very important message for the Philippian church, and it is for us as well, as we navigate living our lives under the rule of the Prince of Peace as pilgrims in a fallen and chaotic world. Maybe this is even one of the greatest challenges that believers face in life. How do we acquire and maintain a peaceful existence in our own hearts in the middle of the absolute chaos around us and within? Peace with God is possible, peace with one another can be a reality, and peace within one's own heart is within reach for those who trust in Jesus. Whether we admit it or not, this is really what everyone is searching for, isn't it? Substance abuse, addiction, greed, gluttony, suicide, even religion, relationships, vocation, education? Maybe it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but isn't it true that most of these pursuits are driven by a desire to be at peace within, to find some kind of meaning and contentment in this topsy-turvy world that we live in? We have a need to stop the raging conflict within, and we will pursue whatever seems to be the next fix In order to do it. It's not difficult is it to look around our society and see that personal contentment and inner peace aren't really evident in the lives of our neighbors and friends. So if we can accept the premise that this is what we long for then we have to grapple with the how do we attain it part of the equation. So for our purposes, let's say that there are two paths to attempt to find inner peace. There's a world's way, and there's God's way. In 1875, British poet William Ernest Henley penned the words to a poem that would come to be one of the most well-known verses from the Victorian era, entitled Invictus. Henley wrote the poem in response to personal tragedy as a way to steel himself against the onslaught of life's difficult circumstances. Out of the night that covers me black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, Pretty strong and bold words in the face of terrible anxiety. And yet, as we all soldier through the difficulties of this, line, this life, we learn very quickly, firsthand, that such words like this are ultimately empty of any real help or comfort. Similar sentiments are often expressed in trite little phrases like, grin and bear it, buck it up, or... No fear. But when the poems and phrases have been uttered and we are alone with nothing but the fear and darkness that grips our hearts, they are no help at all. When we come to the realization that we do not really have the reserves to simply grin and bear it, we're left to turn to temporary props that will be kicked out from under us like toothpicks trying to support too heavy a load, only to come crashing down all around us until we run to the next substitute. But in contrast, on the evening before his execution, Jesus gave his close friends some instructions to prepare them for the unimaginable stress and anxiety that they were about to face. But Jesus' words don't resemble the wisdom of the world that we have just looked at. The disciples were riding high that night after the week of triumphs and cheering crowds. Jesus spent some of that evening teaching them about his kingdom and how differently things were about to unfold. At the end of the evening, before his great prayer and them going out to the garden... In John 16, Jesus said these words. He answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. And the world... You will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus knew that their faith in him was about to be tested like never before. They were about to be stripped down to the absolute end of themselves. The arrogant swaggering and verbal jousting of the upper room would give way to an anxiety that would cause them to run away and abandon their master in his greatest hour of need. What a fall they would take. Jesus was preparing them for the fear that was about to grip their hearts and minds. The world is full of tribulation and chaos, and you won't find peace there. But take heart. I have overcome the world, and in me you may have peace. This is a timely message for us, isn't it? Perhaps in the last year and a half, some things have come up in your hearts and your lives that have caused you great fear and have overshadowed the peace that God provides. They certainly have in my life. The reality of my own mortality and that of my family. Anger directed towards people who don't see the world as I do. The prospect of my circumstances changing economically or culturally, fear of violence coming to a neighborhood near me. We could go on and on. In our passage today, Paul challenges us to reorient and refocus ourselves towards Christ and the peace that he alone can bring. And he starts with a bold imperative Rejoice. In the Lord, always. And just in case the Philippians were tempted to miss it, he restates it for emphasis. Again, I say, rejoice. The cause of the believer's joy isn't found in our circumstances. It is found in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul says not to simply rejoice, grin and bear it style. No, he says to rejoice in the Lord, In Romans 5, beginning in verse 10, Paul says there, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There is no peace in this world without first making peace with God. This is what it means to be reconciled with God. Our sinful state has put us at war with Him, but through His Son's death and resurrection, God has made a way for sinners to be at peace with Him. This is why it's called good news. There is hope for the world through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Remember the Christmas story and what the angel told the shepherds on the hillside that first Christmas Eve. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angelic chorus swarmed in and shouted glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Among those with whom he is pleased. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And not just occasionally. No, rejoice always. No matter your circumstances. No matter the extent of the physical pain. No matter the toll of the emotional anguish. No matter the soul-crushing hurt of the broken relationships. We... Those who have been justified by Jesus' blood, saved from the wrath of God and reconciled to God, we have cause for rejoicing. Because through the pain and tears of this broken and hopeless world of sin, we belong to him. We are at peace with God. This is one of the reasons corporate worship is so important. Because often during the difficult times of life, we have a hard time remembering why we rejoice. It's hard in the loneliness and solitude of suffering to look beyond our circumstances to Jesus. But when we gather in this room together, beholding the glory of the Lord with fellow trophies of his grace, each one redeemed and priceless in his sight having the same struggles against sin in the world, being transformed daily into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is cause for rejoicing with one another. And what better way than to come together as a family to celebrate that truth? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. If you've not professed Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you do not have peace. With God. Listen to the voice of His Spirit within your heart. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from your failures, your fears, and your sin, and believe the good news and be at peace with God. Next in verse 5, Paul declares, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Paul tells us here, in essence, To display graciousness to everyone. Scholars point out that the word here, translated reasonableness in the English Standard Version, is difficult to translate into English. If you are looking at another translation, you may have another word like gentle spirit or forbearance, gentleness or graciousness. All of these words get at it, but it's a larger description. In his commentary, Ralph Martin says that H. Marshall gives a full description of its meaning as fair-mindedness, the attitude of a man who is charitable towards men's faults and merciful in his judgment of their failings because he takes their whole situation into account. Paul is instructing the church that another key in the pursuit of living a peaceful life is to display this kind of graciousness. To everyone. Remember that Paul is writing this from the confines of imprisonment. He's being persecuted for his faith. Christians, we should delete the words from our vocabulary, no fair, and instead be content with the circumstances God has called us to, recognizing that it is all under his good providence. In his pastoral counsel, Paul tells Timothy to pray for those in authority that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In an increasingly hostile society filled with coarse language, crude behavior, incivility, chaos, and even hatred towards fellow image bearers, Christians are called to a higher standard. Think what a testimony it would be in these times to our community if this body of believers were known for living out peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified, and reasonable lives. Jesus, of course, is our supreme example in this. And apart from him, we have no hope of carrying this out. We must read the gospel accounts to see how Jesus lived out his life here on earth as a man and ask the Lord for the grace to look more and more like him in this. Paul interjects a phrase here that could perhaps serve as a motivating factor behind the commands that he is giving the church. He says, the Lord is at hand. Commentators agree that this phrase could mean one of two things. It could mean that the Lord is at hand in the sense that he is near to each believer. Or it could mean the Lord is at hand similar to the early church phrase, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, in the sense of his imminent return and his coming again. But in either case, The apostle is providing both motivation and comfort in the believer's pursuit of peace. It's a good reminder as we walk through the trials of life that we are not alone. Jesus is with us, and we have hope in his return one day soon. The Lord is at hand. This reality provides a great segue to Paul's next command The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Anxiety is a worldly, anti Christian obsession or state of mind. According to Tim Keller, anxiety reveals what the idols of our hearts are. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says anything that becomes more important and non negotiable to us than God becomes an enslaving idol. In this paradigm, we can locate idols by looking at our most unyielding emotions. What makes us uncontrollably angry, anxious, or despondent? Idols control us since we feel we must have them or life is meaningless. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, To his span of life. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus tells us that we should take our eyes off of our temporal circumstances, those things that cause us to be anxious, and instead to seek the things of God. Paul gives a very practical way to do this in the next command. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Pray about everything. Anxiety and prayer are wholly incompatible. If you're laying your concerns down before the sovereign Lord of the universe, who is the one that put those concerns in your life to begin with, then what do you have to be afraid of? Paul uses three words to define this kind of praying. He says, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. When you come to the Lord with the heavy burdens of your heart, Don't come with an attitude of getting your list of demands met. Come to him in worship. Be thankful for the precious gift of coming into his presence. Thank him for giving you Jesus' righteousness that enables you to do that. Thank him for his unconditional love and favor. Thank him, thank him, and thank him again. Worship him for who he is. And yes, plead your case before him. Both yours and that of others. And don't bother coming to him in pretense, for he knows your heart before you utter a word. Be honest and transparent with the Lord. Leave the spiritual platitudes behind and open your heart to him. Look at the transparency that David approaches God with in Psalm 139. O oh Lord. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If, if I send to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David laid bare his soul in complete vulnerability before the Lord, in worship, before he made his petition. He reminded himself of who it was that he was addressing and worshiping. The Psalms are a great professor for teaching us the art of prayer and even giving us the very words to pray when we can't come up with them. Make use of them in your pursuit of a peaceful heart. There are many examples of this pattern of prayer that we can see in the scriptures. One of my favorites, I think, is Daniel. You remember the story of Daniel, perhaps, from Sunday school or From studying it later in your life, Daniel was a captive in a foreign land. And the second regime that he was under had just taken over, King Darius. Darius loved Daniel, respected him, admired him. But many of the people around Darius, many of the other leaders hated Daniel, wanted to get rid of him. They knew he was a God-fearer and that he prayed. And so they conned Darius into making a new law. O King Darius, make a law that nobody will pray or worship anybody else except you, O King. Darius in his pride fell for it, signed the law. And then we pick up here in Daniel 6. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And of course, they turned him in and he had to be thrown into a den with lions. Did you notice the words used to describe Daniel's prayer? He prayed and gave thanks. And he was making petition and a plea before his God. The same pattern we see here in Philippians and many other places in the Bible. We might be tempted to say, well, that didn't work out so well for Daniel, did it? I mean, after all, he got thrown into the lion's den. Where was God? But Daniel's peace wasn't based on his circumstances. It was based on the one in control of his circumstances. And that one gave both Daniel and those hungry lions peace that night as they were locked up together. What an example this is to us in rightly approaching the Lord with our requests and then living in peace after doing so. Jesus calls us to entrust our hearts to him. And Jesus won't abuse you. He won't hurt you or forsake you. People will. They'll often break our hearts and abuse our trust. They'll abandon us in our weakness. But Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. You can be vulnerable with him. More than that, vulnerability with Jesus is the pathway to healing and peace in your heart. Using a military reference to make this point, next Paul inserts the first of two promises of peace for the believer. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace, like a sentinel, stands guard at the gate of your heart and your mind, ready to defend. This is the critical point. For there is a war for our hearts and minds. And if the enemy can keep us in chaos, then we are distracted and useless in the battle. We will grow so weary that we will be incapacitated, frozen, hunkering down and afraid, waiting for it all to be over. This is not the posture for God's people. We've been promised the victory and so can maintain gentleness and peace all the while rejoicing in the middle of the conflict around us. But this is no ordinary peace. It is supernatural. It is beyond human understanding. This peace makes no sense to the worldly. But to the believer who has experienced it in the midst of conflict and suffering, it is one of the sweetest graces that our Heavenly Father gives us. Paul concludes then with more practical commands in the pursuit of preparing for peace in the middle of chaos. First he says, think about praiseworthy things. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Satan and the world would have us focus our attention On the false, dishonorable, unjust, wicked, ugly, appalling things of the world. And these things are all around us, they're everywhere, they're bombarding us every moment of every day. If we allow these things to be the steady diet of our souls, then we will not have peace. We will instead have anxiety and chaos in our hearts. Flee these things and replace them with the good gifts of God those things that are true and honorable, just and pure, lovely and commendable. Our minds never are in neutral. They feed upon something. Be sure that they're feeding on the good and perfect gifts from our Heavenly Father. Of course, these gifts from God are not an end in themselves. They point us to the one that perfectly reflects these attributes, the Lord Jesus. He embodies this list perfectly and completely. When you're standing on the precipice of the Grand Canyon in awe or witnessing the most beautiful sunset on Lake Murray that you've ever seen or holding a newborn baby in awe of the gift and miracle of life, if these things do not cause you to worship the Lord Jesus, then you're not reflecting on them rightly. For Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of every good and perfect gift. Listen to how the hymn writer instructs us. Fair are the meadows. Fairer still the woodlands robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fairer. Jesus is purer. Who makes the woeful heart to sing. Fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry hosts. Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Yes, Jesus is the fair one. As we behold him, as he is presented to us in the scriptures, we look upon the truest, the most honorable, the most just, the purest, the loveliest, the most commendable, the most excellent one, worthy of our praise. So enjoy the good gifts God has given us in this world, but do not look over the giver of the gift. This leads very nicely into the last of Paul's exhortations. What you have learned and received And heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Practice the truth you know. I remember as a young musician hearing the old anecdote. So one day, a tourist is walking down the streets of New York City, and he stops a stranger and says, Excuse me, sir, how do I get to Carnegie Hall And the reply comes, practice, practice, practice. (laughs) Paul exhorts the Philippians and us with the very same advice. Practice the truth of the word of God. We do a great deal of Bible teaching around here, as we should, and we will do until the Lord comes back. But gaining all of that knowledge is of little use if it's not practiced in our lives. The life with Christ is not one that resembles floating down a lazy river on an inner tube. Rather, it more resembles paddling up class five rapids in a kayak. Sometimes we who emphasize a robust reformed theology as it pertains to our salvation, and rightly so, can be lulled into believing that we can coast our way to heaven. But the scripture teaches us that the Christian path of sanctification is one of discipline and hard work. Remember earlier in chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul exhorted, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now. Not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." James tells us we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only, and that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is a dead faith. We must actively practice the word of God. Paul concludes this section with the second promise of peace. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Brothers and sisters, we are called to obedient living, and we must heed Paul's words if we would live a peace-filled life. So as you reflect on your current state of heart and mind, how will you respond to the gospel message today? When we are confronted with truth, the truth of God's word, we must respond To not respond is to choose not to practice what we have heard and seen, as Paul has just instructed, and that in itself is a response. You and I are being called to a life of peace. If you're still at war with God because you've not placed your trust in his only son, then you have no hope of finding this peace that we're talking about. You must first believe on him and be saved Entering into peace and reconciliation with God. If you're already his, then remember that Jesus said he came to bring you life. An abundant life. And part of that abundant life is that we are called as his children to live in peace in the middle of chaos. We often wonder what God's will for our lives is. Well, I can tell you today that according to his word that we have studied, his will is for you to enjoy a supernatural peace in the middle of the chaotic circumstances of your life. I titled this message, Preparing for Peace in the Middle of Chaos, very intentionally. For we must always be preparing and practicing for peace. Because when the trials and difficulties of life squeeze down on our hearts and minds, what we have spent our time digesting is what's going to come out. If we prepare and practice for evil and chaos, then we should expect nothing less. But if by the grace of God we follow Paul's instructions to rejoice in the Lord always, to display graciousness to everyone, to not be anxious about anything... To pray about everything and to practice the truth that we know from the Word of God, the twofold promise will be ours in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds, and that very God of peace will be with you. What a wonderful, amazing promise is ours. Maybe you're tempted to say, nope, doesn't work. You don't know what I'm in the middle of. God isn't showing up this time. How do you know this is God's will for my life? I know because when God makes a promise, he keeps it. The question is not, will God keep his promise to me? But more likely the question is, am I ready to let go of my self-sufficiency and trust him? Do I believe he is trustworthy to handle the vulnerability of my heart? Jesus says this to you today. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we live in turmoil and conflict, our hearts are restless. Our world is chaotic. We struggle with sin. Father, you know this. You know our frame. You know that we are dust. So, Lord, we come to you in our need, looking for rest, looking for peace. Enable us to step out in faith and obedience to what you have called your people to. Help us in these disciplines to find rest in you and to be at peace in our hearts and in our lives. Help us as we interact with one another and with the world, with our friends, our family, and our neighbors, to demonstrate the peace of Christ in our lives, to be reasonable, to be loving, so that others might see what you have done in our lives and might fear and trust you. Help us as individuals to run to you in times of turmoil and conflict, to lay our burdens before you, to bring everything to you in prayer and in thanksgiving. We ask for your help in this. In the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.